Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest this week is someone I met on the beach in Florida about 15 years ago, and we have been like brothers ever since. I've had the pleasure to work with him and for him. He's a former executive at Bank of America and American Express. He is absolutely one of the leading voices when it comes to the world of marketing and media today. He is my dear friend, Lou Pascalis. Lou, I, I cannot thank you for, for coming on my show. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, Steve. I'm honored to be here with you and looking forward to our chat. So I want to jump. I know this is so at the top of your list or right near the top of your list. And you referred to it as the plight of journalism in the U.S. And the operative word right off to me was plight, right? And and that's a, that's a very, very strong word. And I want to get into what you described as advertisers' unfounded fears of getting caught up in the culture wars, but adding to that saying, it's even more frustrating is the business value of news has never been stronger. So I want to start with, and I'll, I'm just going to start with this and you can take it anywhere you want, but where are these fears, these unfounded fears coming from? Yeah, it's a really great question. And uh, I wish more advertisers themselves would ask themselves that question. But just a little bit of context for your audience. And I know you know this, but in the 15-year period ending in March of 2020, which was the dawn of the pandemic, advertising investments in news are down 80, 80%. Imagine any other business that would endure that kind of massive decline in revenue and still be able to produce a quality product. The first real evidence of just how big that impact is is that a study that the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics did in roughly the same period, not exactly the same period, but roughly the same period, shows a 50% decline in people working in newsrooms in the United States. So in that period, went from the idea of, oh my gosh, look at this smartphone, it has a camera, to now consuming everything and running our lives on that smartphone, to now having social media be the primary engagement vehicle in mobile devices, right? So everything is happening in our mobile environment. Everything is now going through more and more layers of scrutiny, both on the client side, because look, they need to govern their investments uh, on the vendor side, because compliance has become more and more onerous. You know, publishers are, are now required to do a lot more things concerning their data. But ultimately, what advertisers have decided is that with all that complexity and with all the uncertainty around the culture wars, where the nation is increasingly polarized by that very social media that I just referenced, they're sitting out of news. They want to avoid getting identified as you know part of the woke agenda or whatever the opposite of that non-existent thing is. And so the best way to win in their calculus is not to play. We saw a big spike and people pulling out of news on October 7th when the terrorist attack occurred inside of Israel. And if you think about that attack, what is the first thing that the journalism 
industry did. They put people on planes and invested serious coin of the realm to get reporters on the ground to report the truth, to share the facts, to make sure that people were well informed. So at the very minute, their costs are going up, up, up to provide the service that the Constitution of the United States demands that they do. The only profession called out in the United States Constitution in Article 1 of the Bill of Rights, marketers are throttling the investment. And the, the really painful reality, as you alluded to, is not only is the business value of news growing in terms of the audience they deliver, in terms of the unduplicated reach that can be found in news audiences, in terms of the return on advertising spend because of the high Unduplicate because of the high household income and discretionary lifestyle that people who read news, the quote unquote news junkie, deliver, but also because the demand for news is increasing. And they're sitting out. And they're sitting out on an issue that multiple studies have debunked that advertisers will get tagged for being on one side of the news simply if their ads show up in news. That's not true. It's been proven not to be true by multiple studies. So the question is, are CEOs really aware that their teams, led by the chief marketing officer and that person's chief media officer, are no longer supporting quality journalism and you know their efforts to defend truth in what I would arguably say is a worldwide war on truth? It it just fascinates me. And like, you know, I'm such a student of human nature, as you know, and why people, and so are you, and why people do things just in life in general. But it's even more heightened when it comes to our world of advertising and marketing. And, and is it me or does it seem like advertisers and marketers, and I go back to that term you use, unfounded, but you know, as well as anybody on the planet, perception's reality. And that leads to that unfounding belief that, even though there's proof, like you just said, there's multiple studies, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and part of the problem is is a really insidious one that it's one of those well-intended things that has really bad consequences. Increasingly, the activities of marketing are falling under the scrutiny of corporate communications inside of a large enterprise. Corporate communications is a large function. They generally are risk-averse. They have unfettered access to the chief executive officer, and they tightly control his or her narrative in the marketplace. Their primary focus is to work closely with investor relations in a publicly traded company to ensure not only that the investor community and the board of directors in particular, as well as Wall Street, are not surprised by anything they do, but that risks are mitigated. And... From their perspective, advertising and news could create a risk, and they don't think it's essential to the business strategy. So they tend to, if not outright direct marketing to avoid advertising and news, they tend to cajole along those lines. And the real irony, in my experience, is those are the very same people who come to the media team and say, hey, are you able to help us get a story placed in the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal for your connections? So on the one hand, they see the value of stories about, you know, the marketer being in those news institutions. And I use those illustratively. But on the other hand, they want to shy away from any potential risk. Again, even though that risk is unfounded 
And, you know, there's only so many battles you can fight internally as a marketer. And at the end of the day, news isn't quote unquote essential. So you don't need to fall on your sword on it. So you go and advertise in lifestyle and baking and sports and other things where there's far less controversy. And in doing so, you do a disservice to your business, which runs on truth, to the economy, which is founded on truth, and to our society, which requires truth as the common frame of reference in civil discourse, and to our democracy, which we've seen shattered in the 2016 and 2020 elections by people who have a loose relationship with the truth. You and I have talked about this before, but I remember early in the previous president's administration, a woman named Kellyanne Conway standing on the front lawn of the White House, being interviewed about something that her president said, which didn't appear true to the reporter. And Kellyanne Conway at the time used a term I had never heard of before. She said, well, the president is using alternative facts. And so I Googled alternative facts. I was like, is this a thing? And at the time, it wasn't. But I like to say today, facts are fungible. They're shoppable. You can find someone saying something somewhere that comports with your bias, no matter how radical it is. And you use that as a legitimizing reference to whatever you know claim you're making. And you know, if you think about our nation's youth and what they're being acculturated now to, we've got eight years of that under our belt. It's becoming institutionalized. That's a scary proposition to me. It's very scary. And you just mentioned the youth. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on. So we've talked about from the advertiser side, what do you get? What's your impression? What's your gut telling from the consumer side? And what I mean by that is, are consumers noticing? Are consumers, and maybe it's based on age, you know, Gen Z versus boomers kind of thing. Do you get the impression that, that consumers are noticing that brands are not, you know, aligning themselves or being part of the general news cycle for these reasons? And if so, is that having an effect on the bottom line? So uh, it's a really excellent question. There is bifurcation. Older folks who have a more trustworthy relationship with news are very aware of the fact that, you know, what you're seeing in news is not really that sort of A-tier advertiser. And what we know, regardless of age, is that consumers would rather see marketers advertise in news, even if that news is unsettling, than see them pull out of news. So universally, and we're seeing some real green shoots with younger cohorts like Gen Z and millennials who have moved away from sourcing their news from social media in response to what we're seeing and are going back to quote unquote traditional news sources and then older consumers who never moved away from news. Now, the interesting thing against that backdrop, a recent study that just came out, which was very damning from Forrester, showed that trust in news is at an all-time low. And if you think about it, you know, there's an entire group of people out there that are talking about the lamestream media who are, you know, just making a case without any facts about the bias of news. And look, journalism doesn't always get it right, but these are people who get up every morning with the fundamental desire to bring truth forward. And they work hard to expose the truth, to disseminate the truth, and defend the truth. And 
sure, some of them are biased and some of them are less biased. That's one of the things that we do at Adfantes Media. We rate the news on bias and reliability and give marketers an opportunity to work with those platforms that are least biased and most reliable to actually get some of the dollars flowing back into news that it's lost over the last 18 years. And we've had a lot of success there on the client side because when you make the business case first about the high ROAS, the high unduplicated reach, the attractiveness of the news audience, you get a people who you get a lot of people who start either on test and learn or more broadly re-embracing news, the opportunity there greatly exceeds the demand still. And at a point where demand for news is growing, certainly going into November of next year, literally one year from tomorrow, there's a lot of money being left on the table. I think CEOs need to weigh in and say, we need to support news. It's important to our business. It's an important audience and it's the right thing to do, you know, as part of our ESG framework, as part of supporting our values. It's just the right thing to do. And the risks are fairly minimal and the benefits are clear. We could spend this whole time talking about that one topic without question, but I, w- I want to move on to something else. Last time we talked, you referenced that I love this. You called it a three-way collapse of trust. And I asked you to explain what that meant. And you said it's between advertisers and vendors, between consumers and advertisers, and a creeping suspicion held by both consumers and marketers that bad actors have compromised data. And it, it's very telling. And I know there were some studies done, I think, by the ANA and analytics that speak to this, this, this very, very three-way collapse. Yeah, it's profound. And I'm glad you bring that up, Steve, because once again, it's, it's distressing that, you know, nature abhors a vacuum and marketers haven't really opined on a lot of these issues for a number of reasons. And so either through errors of omission, which means that the vendor community and publishers and platforms didn't realize exactly what their own people were doing with things like data and privacy, consent and compliance, or errors of commission where they took liberties because the client wasn't clearly saying, Simon says, thou shalt not do this. We now have a system where marketers are increasingly shocked by what happens at the vendor level with the intent of their media investments with the data that those media investments generate, and with the safety of their own customers and prospects from a privacy and consent standpoint. And so you referenced the, the ANA programmatic transparency study. The final version is coming out in the next week or two, which showed overwhelmingly that the participants in the study saw their advertising dollars going to vendors that they didn't intend. So just to put it in perspective, there were 21 participants in the study, 16 of whom had inclusion lists. The inclusion list is what does the the advertiser want to limit their advertising to? When I was at Bank of America, we had an inclusion list of approximately 6,000 sites that we had vetted, that we ensured comported with our own privacy and transparency and compliance expectations, and that we monitored very closely and updated on a biweekly basis. Coincidentally, the 16 participants in the programmatic transparency study who had an inclusion list roughly had 6,000 sites on those lists. The average participant in that study ran on 44,000 sites. 
38,000 more sites than were on their inclusion list. 38,000 sites that under California's CPRA create significant liability for them. Under CPRA, the public, the marketer is required to perform due diligence on every vendor with whom they do business. And failure to perform said due diligence results in a loss of the presumption of innocence by the California Attorney General. So that's 38,000 opportunities to end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. That creates reputational risk. The reason that's happening, Steve, is because there are these things, secondary and tertiary auctions, that all take place in the programmatic marketplace. So a vendor says, hey, I've got 3 million of the impressions that you're seeking against the audience that you seek. In a 30 millisecond round trip, the marketer says, yes, I'll accept that bid. And then the publisher finds out that they just sold half of those impressions to somebody else. So they go to a secondary marketplace and they resell that bid at a bit of a profit and so on and so on. And a reference that I hope you'll appreciate, you then have a Miss Clairol commercial. All of that taking place, I need to appreciate that, all of that taking place in a 30 millisecond round trip. It's, it's, it's fashion in a human blink and eye. So those inclusion lists get broken there. A particularly insidious part of that is something called made for advertising sites. These are those sites that are usually at the bottom of the page. And what they do, Steve, is they really create a very bad user experience with multiple, multiple ads flashing in, huge ad calls, very distracting, and one of the worst consumers of carbon, one of the, I'm sorry, first generators of carbon, as you start to think about how are you going to deliver your enterprise sustainability goal, eliminating MFAs from your buy, in the case of the programmatic transparency study, would eliminate 21% of the impressions delivered. So not one MFA site appeared on any single inclusion list of the 16 participants in that study who had inclusion lists. And yet they took 21% of the impressions, fully one-fifth, because marketers are failing to follow the golden rule of advertising, don't expect what you don't inspect. So is it as simple as that, Lou? Is it as simple as the marketers the world over, let alone in the U.S., not only don't know what they don't know, but also don't care to know what they don't know? I think there was a time where plausible deniability with, you know, the flag of the ostrich with its head buried in the sand was the best way forward. But as programmatic now has become the largest share of the advertiser's budget, at least in digital, if not across the entire advertising investment portfolio, that is not a viable strategy. Because as these studies come out and reference the analytic study, which was actually a series of study that were a terrible indictment of some of the you know biggest platforms out there where the dollars are not being stored correctly and multiple screenshots of you know financial services ads next to content intended for children which is a direct violation of a quarter century old law called COPPA the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act you can no longer proceed with that strategy the COO is going to say Hey, the Wall Street Journal keeps telling me these stories about how programmatic investments are very risky. How do you, how well do you understand these issues? And let me get back to you is not a winning strategy because the COO, more often than not in these companies today, is the next CEO. And with marketing's biggest expense, biggest single line item, advertising, and you don't have your eye in the ball because you're too focused on creative or 
some other aspect of you know what's going on it's no longer a viable strategy and they're going to get called out and and these issues are solvable for example if you told your agency we will no longer pay any single vendor that is not on our inclusion list unless it's a pre-approved set of exceptions for maybe we need to augment our inclusion list to hit our diversity equity and inclusion goal Maybe we need to augment our inclusion list because we have a reach problem in India and we need to add some sites for that market. Maybe we need to add, augment our inclusion list so that we can achieve our sustainability requirements. Predetermined reasons with predetermined extensions to that inclusion list. Not like willy nilly today. If you stop paying MFAs, if you stop paying vendors who aren't in your inclusion list, this problem would go away overnight. Follow the money. It's great advice going back to Watergate. And it's just as true today. But we're not doing that. That simple sentence would cause the agency to figure out a solution. That simple sentence is not being articulated today. And if I'm the CFO and I ask, you know, well, have you given direction to not go off the inclusion list? You know, humana, humana, humana is not a good answer. No, nor, nor is ignorance of the law. Correct. It excuses no woman or man. It, exactly. Exactly. Again, another boy. We have to like set up top uh, sessions where each of these. <laughs> and Lord knows, the next topic I'm going to bring up is very much going to be its own segment, and and that's what I refer to as the elephant Lou in everybody's room these days, and it's AI. And I get the feeling there's this there's magic elixir or panacea that a lot of marketers are looking at AI, going, it will solve all of my problems. And I know from conversations you and I have had, like me, you have a very genuine concern, if not fear, of the collective marketing world falling into that. It's okay. AI will fix that. Right? So is is that the right word for you? I don't want to put words in your mouth. I have a fear of that. Where do you fall when it comes to you get the feeling that marketers have this preconceived uh, that AI is the magic elixir? So years ago, Steve, I used to like to say this to be provocative at the opening of a conference. If I was speaking, I would say programmatic is the worst thing that ever happened to advertising. And it's the salvation of marketing. And people would ask, how can it be both of those things? Well, AI is at that same crossroads. I think uh, years ago, I recommended a book to you called Prediction Machines by AJ Agarwal, who is the one of the founders of the Creative Destruction Lab at the University of Toronto. And it was a book designed to really help the C-suite understand the value of AI to marketing in particular and business in general. This was before we were using you know, the term generative AI. But as it was written for the C-suite, it was overly simplified which is a good strategy because they all suffer from attention deficit disorder. The fundamental thesis of that book is that you can reduce your marketing costs substantially by replacing manual repetitive tasks with AI functions. And I fundamentally applaud that, right? You have heard me say many times that optimization is the enemy of innovation. Well, if you've got 65 people generating uh, direct mail marketing, Direct mail marketing is not that sophisticated. It's a valuable channel to be sure. 
but you're actually limiting the potential of that direct mail by not letting AI figure out, for example, all the different nuances of all the different audiences that you could potentially reach. I like to say engineer relevance into every interaction. In in a direct mail perspective, that means you could version much more granularly what you mail out. The same is true in email. And these are these are Rocco Sluggo in terms of you know innovation today. But you could take that headcount, invest in the, the predictive analytics capability that generative AI is excellent at, figure out new audiences that you never thought existed before. Remember the fundamental difference of AI from the perspective of marketers is it requires neither an hypothesis nor an assumption. You don't need to do endless A-B tests to find the right audience, which is backward looking. It's doing that for you in real time without predefining what A and B are and finding the optimal solution. One of my clients, Chalice Custom Algorithms, is their entire business model is actually showing marketers that what they think their audience is and what their audience actually is are fundamentally different and much more granular. And it increases the efficacy of their marketing efforts by as much as 57% in work that we've done. So the value is there. But my My ask of marketers, Steve, is that for every hour that you put in today to figuring out what use cases you want to light up as you start to embrace AI, you put the same amount of time into governance. You actually bring together all of the stakeholders in the enterprise, including those and especially those who might say, well, I'm not really an expert in this area, so I I don't want to participate. No, because if you govern correctly, what you can actually do is differentiate your brand and your business in the marketplace by always respecting the customer's privacy choices, by building towards customer long-term value, which is the winning strategy on the way forward, by ensuring that you reflect your values and how you go to market so that you're not exploiting data. AI is inherently driven to find bias. And if you are in a regulated category, like alcoholic beverages, like pharmaceuticals, and like financial services, those biases are a double-edged sword. Certain populations, particularly for credit and lending products, generally have lower credit scores. They're called barbell audiences. You have really high high and really low low within that population. But if the AI starts to bias away from protected classes, let's just say people who have a handicap or a disability, that becomes a liability for the market. And so you need to govern for that. You need to figure out how to put rules in place. You need to test, learn, and skip. You can't just kind of blindly throw out to the AI and then eliminate your internal capability who understands those issues. And it's why they have jobs today. It's why there are, you know, 60 odd people doing direct mail marketing because they understand all that and they use the human eye and the human brain to scan for that. AI will ultimately be better at that than the human brain. And in a world where the regulation is changing rapidly and consumer expectations are changing rapidly and cultural consequences are escalating exponentially, um, you and I talk about things, uh, you know, frequently that today, you know, in polite company, if we were there on the beach in Tampa in our first meeting, we wouldn't talk about it. If you don't believe me, Go on YouTube and watch one episode of All in the Family, Archie Bunker. Oh my God, it's cringeworthy. But in 1970, 
what is that, 43 years ago, we said, we don't say them today. AI will help marketers figure out all of that. That's 53 years ago, by the way. Oh, Jesus, you're right. Well, I'm not good at math. I've been in media my whole career. I can't really do math. But the point, obviously, is AI is a force for good if you force it to be good for you. And, you know, I'd like that to be the takeaway from this conversation and go back to what I said earlier. Don't expect what you don't inspect. How are you going to build this capability? Just the same way you built your team, looking for the best quality people, finding those subject matter experts who really brought forward a POV that helped you win in the marketplace, not just performatively, but reputationally. And then build AI in a privacy by design, consent by design framework and monitor those outputs and take a lot of that headcount you save and actually create an internal audit function with those same experts. AI is doing things for you at scale that you would expect put the best foot forward of the company you work for. Yeah. Listen, I'm being very respectful of time and I know there's a beach with your name on it. Looking back on your career, this is a very high-level, open-ended, deep-thinking, whatever you want to call it. Is there one person who's had the biggest impact? Yes. I would say the one person who had the biggest impact on my career was Ernest Gallo. I was recruited out of business school to go to work at Gallo after I had accepted a job at a creative agency in New York, and I thought all I wanted to do was be an account guy. But uh, Ernest taught me the value of an investment. He taught me that you need to be present to win, so much so that I spent a large part of my time at E&J Gallo, where I worked for 15 years, actually with the agency that was buying media for Gallo in New York in vendor meetings. He taught me that every investment you make should feel like it's coming out of your own pocket and that the trade-offs are defendable. But he also taught me to take risks. There are times when you just fundamentally in your gut know it's the right thing to do. When I was at American Express, it was 2008, 2009, and there was a pretty significant economic downturn. Congress was ineffective at addressing it. We saw companies go out of business overnight, large you know, companies in the financial sector. I had an office that you could hear the people in Zuccotti Park screaming Occupy Wall Street. And we had this idea for Small Business Saturday. And the idea was simply this. We could do something to jumpstart small business in the United States that Congress wasn't able to do. And it was founded on two and only two facts. One, 68 cents out of every dollar stays in the local community in a small business. So if you go into the local candle shop or the local flower shop or a local hardware store, 68 cents you spend there is going to stay in the, in the local community. Why? Because nine out of 10 jobs created in the United States at that time and still today are created by small business. So this was actually a consumer campaign. It was a consumer movement, but it was positioned as helping small business. And we took a risk and we bet big. And 18 days after the idea came up, it was in the marketplace. Uh, let me assure you, that never happened before. Never could we, you know, it would take six months to do something. And the president of the division that was running that, a woman named Susan Sobbitt, who ran the Open for American Express Business, which was the small business arm, 
just authorized everything at some personal risk. And she got buy-in from all the key executives and we were in the market. And I remember one day, and I'll close with this, where we got word from a woman named Valerie Jarrett, who was in President Obama's uh, White House, that the president was going to go shopping in a small business on Saturday, a bookstore, and buy some books as a photo op to support Small Business Saturday. So one of our key strategic partners at the time was what is now called iHeartMedia, what was iHeartRadio there. And their CEO, long-term friend of mine, Bob Pittman, was really committed to this. So we let his people know that, hey, this was going to happen Saturday. And what came back was that um, they weren't able to get it into the rotation for Saturday because of the way that they blocked and locked the news on Saturday in the local stores, in the local stations. So I shared that with Bob Pittman, and he wrote right back and said on it, and all I'm going to tell you, Steve, is that every hour on the hour for the entire Saturday of the first Saturday of Small Business Saturday, every iHeart station in America was covering the fact that President Obama went and shopped in a small business. And so those are three people that have influenced me along the way. Bob Ernest Gallo, uh, the Ernest Gallo, Susan Sobbitt, president of Open for American Express, and Bob Pittman, who is still the chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. And it's about risk-taking. It's about driving innovation and change, but it's also about doing your due diligence. Well, with that perfect timing, I'm going to wrap it up. I would say to you, go enjoy the rest of your day, but I would be lying because it is a dismal day here in Philly, and I ah. you know you're on your, <laughs> your sunny beach. But I love you like a brother. You know that. And I cannot thank you for taking time out of your vacation to do this. Steve, it's always a pleasure. I wish we had more time. I always enjoy our conversations, and I hope your audience finds it valuable. Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you. Thank you.